Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. Not to cover this. All right. Segment four, the theory, of which you have more in this book than I'd expected. Righteous indignation. A lot gets explained here. Marx and Hegel had paved the way for the progressives, who in turn had paved the way for the Frankfurt School, who had then attacked the American way of life okay, by pushing have, uh, cultural Marxism. We have, we have a great show tonight. Welcome to Broadcast and Politics. Your host, Cisco Acosta. My co-host, Luther Mays. He should be here very soon. And we have a great guest tonight, Professor Tanya Hernandez, a professor at Fordham University in New York City. Uh, she was just recently named to the Fordham Law Archibald Murray Professorship. She has an upcoming book, Multiracial and Civil Rights. We're going to get into the topic. It's going to get heavy. Get ready. It's going to be an exciting show. Just sit back and relax and enjoy it. Call, her, call um, Professor Hernandez. Just wanted to touch on a couple of things in regards to politics that's happening right now. This whole situation with Sanctuary City. It's out of control. Totally out of control. We have a, we have a mayor in Philadelphia that has defied ICE, totally defied the federal government. And this whole situation with the, the sanctuary cities has a lot to do with the federal funding that goes along with it. Because I don't remember hearing about sanctuary cities uh, basically uh, five, ten years ago. But now that has taken a really, really great push by the politicians, especially from the left, that have basically are using, utilizing that money for other fundings and basically trying to protect that sanctuary city uh, as much as possible as they can, and they will fight to death to maintain that status quo. So I believe that that's really something that uh, uh, President Trump and Jeff Session need to step up to the plate. Welcome, Luther. How are you? Doing good. How are you doing, Cisco? All right. Looking forward to another great show. Um, just basically touching before we bring on our guest, uh, Professor Hernandez, to uh, about the Sanctuary City. I was just mentioning ten years ago. I Sanctuary Cities. What was that? That totally wasn't was even known issue. That's right. It was not known, but. I think the key point in this whole expansion of sanctuary cities has been the federal funding that these progressive cities in, in our country are getting during the Obama administration. So they're basically going to fight to the death, I mean to death, to, to, to the end, to maintain that status quo. Would you agree? Right. Yep. And now that President Trump's in, they're going to use uh... – they're going to use their state level to, to push this. Definitely, definitely. That's uh, I think that's that's going to be a real battle, and it's going to continue. And I think uh, ICE is doing what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to basically get rid of all these criminal aliens that are basically bringing drugs into our country. Just as President Trump said, you know, he was not classifying everyone. For anyone out there who thinks that he was classifying every every Mexican, every Hispanic, every, no, he was not. He was he specifically said criminal aliens who are bringing drugs, which is happening in the on the border. And I know personally it right. is because I have I have family that works as, as border patrol you know, officers. So that is you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know that ISIS has been coming in here since the seventies. People don't realize that. Uh huh. This is not. This is nothing new. ISIS has been coming. Not ISIS, but um, M13 members been coming in across that border since the 70s. The problem is, is they're coming across. They're the ones we don't want in here. Right. We want Definitely. the proud Mexican people that want to come here and make a living and not get nothing handed to them. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, that's that's definitely uh, it's very true. I mean, hardworking Mexican people that are you know out there, but. Again, it has nothing to do with race. But anyway, let me no. uh, go ahead and, and, and uh, 
and dial um, our guest. Okay. So just basically uh, getting back to the sanctuary city uh, situation, it's definitely uh, it's going to continue to be a battle until we we go ahead and and um, and, and, and win. Yeah, what what the liberals have done is they've used the uh, they are using it at state level to pull this now because Trump's in. Right, right. That's, and that's we got a the, Muslim running for governor here in Michigan, and this is going to be a real problem if he gets in, but I don't think he will. Right. That's. Uh, did, you well, hear the, we, did you hear the news hoping, about California? Did you hear about the news about California? If you go and get help or get food stamps, they're going to put a lien on your home if you own it? You're kidding. Did you hear about that? No, I have not. Yeah, I have. Yeah, California right now they're leaning people's houses that need help, and if they have a house, they will lean it, lean the house for the money they owe. They can pay it back because uh, they're broke. All right, hold, they hold gave, on, hold they on. Give all this money away. Okay, Professor Hernandez. Speaking. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. All right. I have my co-host uh, Luther Mays on, on 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 the other line, and um, how you doing? Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Hey, how was, um, before we step into uh, the whole topic, uh, your book, and congratulations again on being named to the Fordham Law's Archibald Murray Professorship. Thank you. How was the game Manchester United last week? <laughs> Do you know that I was unable to go? I had to give away my ticket, and oh my, my poor God. godson had to, but I, he was able to go with a good friend of his instead. Yeah, I had to help my mom out with some stuff, and so... I wasn't able to go there instead, but. Well, you know, MetLife is a is, is a great, great, great stadium and a great place to see uh, professional games or concerts and everything. But anyway, uh, congratulations on your upcoming book, Multiracial and Civil Rights. Um, if you can let us the uh, let us get to know you a little better. Talk to the audience in regards to how did you come about being a law professor and um, writing books? Okay. Well, I mean, I've been in the business now for uh, law teaching for over 20 years, uh, and part of my sort of commitment and passion about doing that is because my concern for, you know, social justice and racial equality is also about Mm -hmm. teaching other people sort of how to pursue that. Um, there was only so much I could do as one single lawyer, um, but the idea of being able to reach out and train many more people to go and do that um, is right. a very exciting thing to me. Um, and I'm able to reach even more people by doing the writing, you know, not just the students who are in my classroom, um, but a much wider audience. Right. Well, this whole situation with, with race and color and the the division that um, I mean I, I was just telling my co-host that I, there's a lot of things that are happening today that I don't remember ever hearing when I was growing up you know and I grew up in I grew up in New York City uh, and, and, and and on the East Coast and I never really even though even though the 60s the late 60s early 70s there was a lot of tension. You know, we had the uh, Newark, uh, I was a little kid at that time, Newark uh, situation, the Watts situation with the racial issues. You know, in Alabama, we had Governor Wallace uh, basically attacking uh, African-American individuals. Uh, So, yeah, we did have some tension. But today, it's kind of different in the sense that race, has become a business. Would you agree with that? The, the issue of race, of racism has become a, a, a business. I mean, Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson have benefited quite greatly from that, creating that tension. Would you agree or, or disagree? 
I mean, I guess the, the idea about business I see from a different perspective. I mean, I think that there's sort of a growing cottage industry um, of people who uh, profess to be sort of diversity trainers and experts um, and who sort of kind of tout their skills for a fee <laughs> of being able to, uh, <laughs> you know, make the world a better place in your workplace or, you know, whatever the enterprise may be. And in that respect, I see um, sort of a business angle to it, um, but not in the um, sense of the fostering of tensions. I think, unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. the tensions you know, have long been there, but what has become sort of more problematic is that um, with sort of signals from the very top of our government, um, what's been unleashed is sort of like this permission, a license uh, Mm -hmm. to, you know, exercise discrimination, to express uh, biased views um, in ways that I think may took many of us by surprise because even though we haven't been living in any kind of racial utopia, you know, far from it, Right. At the mm-hmm. same time, you know, progress had been made, and right. I, I think we kind of got into, into this space of, well, you know, things will, will continue to improve little by little. We had a civil rights movement. We had civil rights laws in place. Um, right. There are no longer sort of you know, state-mandated forms of segregation. So, you know, things can only get better. Um, and I think that's probably part of what feels so disconcerting is that, um, it feels like we're stepping back instead of moving forward right now. Okay. Would you would you would you would you consider that the society that Martin Luther King said, uh, the color blind society, that's no that's that has not happened? Do you do you, do you find that, that I have a dream, uh, the color blind society never has really surfaced? No. I mean, certainly, you know, people are able uh, uh, over time to develop relationships, you know, across race, families, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But what has not changed, unfortunately, um, are the ways in which skin color, ethnic and racial background statistically matter. I mean, by that, I, uh, I mean to say that if you look at all the social science data, it shows the ways in which, you know, people who have the same educational levels, the same levels of experience, et cetera, are not treated the same based on their racial background. You know, time and time again, there's a penalty um, to uh, being non-white uh, in our society. And you know, unfortunately, that continues so, to be a problem. So what, what would you say to a, a young person growing up in the Appalachian Mountains in rural Kentucky? And I've traveled throughout the whole United States on quite a bit. Poor Caucasian young people who have basically, they're, they're, they're poor. Uh, and they're white. So what would you mm-hmm. say to someone? What would you say to someone like that? Because I've been, I've been to the hill. I, I've traveled through mm-hmm. Wisconsin and West Virginia and, 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 and some of the rural, and the conditions are pretty pretty horrible. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would say I mean, that living living in in, 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 in in urban ghetto in a project is ten times better than living where the, the individuals live. So I, I I'm just trying to get. To the point where discrimination, you know, uh, uh, comparable. I want, I want, I want, uh, from your perspective, a com- comparable situation. Someone growing up in that rural area, dirt poor, and being discriminated. I mean, I would say grow- to such an individual that uh, classism exists, right? You know, socioeconomic bias okay. exists in our society. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, to say that racism exists doesn't mean that nothing else exists at the same time. Far from it. Um, and then to uh, attend to one area doesn't mean that you are uh, not concerned with other areas. You know, so uh, Martin Luther King, who you referenced earlier, was just as concerned with socioeconomic strife um, as he was with issues of racial discrimination, um, and they're not right. mutually exclusive. Um, you know, to pursue uh, racial justice doesn't mean that you can't also be concerned with all people who are sort of uh, completely under the um, the strictures 
of class bias and crushing poverty. You know, that's a problem across the board. Uh, it doesn't mean that racism doesn't, unfortunately, continue to exist as well. Right, right. But I think the point that I'm trying to get to is when we see young people living in poverty, quote-unquote mm-hmm. poverty, in the urban areas, and then you see the same pe- type of pe- individuals living in rural uh, America, why, why is one being discriminated and not given the opportunity or being called, considered, okay, they, they have white privilege or black privilege or Hispanic privilege? You know, I mean, I, I, think, I think what I'm trying to get at is that it's not really, it's more of a class issue than a racial issue. What is? The condition, the living conditions of, the, of these individuals that have not made it to the top of, of you know, top of, of life. Well, the problem with that uh, analysis is that what's missing from the picture are the ways in which all the studies that show that when you have people who do have the same socioeconomic status, the same uh-huh. educational level, so let's say two people who are university uh, graduates, and all that's Mm -hmm. different is their racial background, and you still see a lack of interest in interviewing the black college graduate as opposed to the white college graduate. What that shows, right, is that, yes, classism is a problem, but there's still an influence of racial bias that has to be attended to. There's lots of bad bad things happening in the world. It doesn't mean that race is any less of a problem because there are multiple things happening all simultaneously. Okay. I'm not going to be selfish. Um, Luther, do you have a question for Professor Hernandez? Well, uh, as you're talking about uh, these people from the mountains of Kentucky, my dad was from there, and and they're they're in just like probably their conditions are probably worse than the people in the cities. So really, it's it's not a it's not a color issue. It's a it's an issue of uh, what I say about all this is why we're so we all we all got to quit being so divided because we're divided. The government's conquered us. We have to stop fighting amongst ourselves and get along and love each other. Do you agree okay. with that? Oh, I certainly agree that all of us have to get on the same page as far as fighting social injustice. Um, and that poverty is a problem, you know, no matter where it's located. Um, right. And then that's something that, you know, uh, people of good conscience should all sort of come together on, certainly. Well, I, I, there's something else that really, um, and I've been meaning to ask you this question ever since I, uh, we, we agreed on you coming on. Do would you do you consider Hispanic to be a race? I do not. Uh, oh, the good. Thing about oh, good. His, yeah, because the thing about good. Hispanic is that it encompasses people of multiple uh, backgrounds, uh, from various different nations, uh, locations, colors, colors, and color colors, and yeah. race. Right? You know, with to say Hispanic doesn't mean that you have much more information about someone's racial background because Hispanics can be of any race. Exactly. exactly. I think a lot, that's a lot, what a lot of people have a misunderstanding of, that, and I'm glad you clarify that. Uh, thank you for that. Um, the, the next thing is um, President Trump has, has mentioned something about on the new census, uh, basically categorizing. You, I know you had uh, an issue, I think it was the book on categorizations of Latinos, I think it's one of the, the, the books uh, in regards to the census. Why is there such an opposition of in regards to classifying people, you know, of different, like, for example, I know in Puerto Rico, uh, from studies that I've read, that 70% of Puerto Ricans basically classify themselves as white uh, when they did the, the, the census, you, I, I, I sense that there's people, uh, individuals, especially in the in academia, that have an issue with that, with the census, the new census, the, 
in the old census, too. Well, I mean, you know, there's a couple of different uh, layers to all of it. Um, the, the most recent uh, debate, so, so I'll kind of work my way backwards. Right, so the mo- most recent debate is about the uh, Census Bureau uh, proposing that Latinos uh, be counted as a race instead of be counted as an ethnic group, right? Um, uh, In the view of the census, there are too many people checking the some other race box, meaning not being very uh, definitive, uh, and what they want is to move all these Latinos out of that box and instead into just a unified Latino race box. Of course, what this uh, uh, completely overlooks is that Latinos can check ethnicity, right, and then they're able to check as many other races as apply. Right? Uh, lumping the two classifications together, both race and ethnicity, what that would completely do is erase Latinos who are of African ancestry. Right? Uh, erase Latinos who want to uh, make a demarcation of their indigenous ancestry. You know, people from Central America, some of them don't even have Spanish as a first language. You know, they speak a Maya language. Um, And so trying to treat Hispanic as if it were sort of some self-evident racial category then erases all the ways in which we are different. And it's important to know about those differences, not just, you know, from some sort of cultural pride move, because the census is not about sort of, uh, you expressing yourself, right? It's a bureaucratic form. Um, what the <laughs> census does is it enables uh, people who care about this to examine racial disparities across society. So, for instance, when the federal government wants to check out whether um, there have been problems with bank allocations of mortgages for people who apply, they can look and see how many people in a particular neighborhood have a certain socioeconomic status and have applied for a mortgage and have been denied or accepted. And if those differences align themselves, acceptance, denial, same socioeconomic status, along race lines, then that statistical disparity lets you know, uh uh-oh, there's a problem here. So having a way to count is very important for the enforcement of civil rights laws. So it's not just an inconsequential sort of form with boxes on it uh, or, you know, Statisticians like to say that the devil is in the details, right? So it, those details matter a great deal. Uh, right. And the, so the census move to try to collapse those two categories is really quite consequential. Um, but because the census taking is in such disarray right now from underfunding, um, that didn't happen. <laughs> it, the proposal hasn't been uh, put into effect. Right, right. And again, my my, my feeling is that. You should, I mean, anyone who's basically answering the census, if they feel that this is what they they look like and they feel like, that's what they should be um, applying and and, and, and checking. Um, I don't believe that that, uh, there there should be anything really, really that the federal government dictates because that is not the way our country should be, you know, it should be run. Mm-hmm. That's a personal. That's a personal decision, but I'm glad we clarified, and I appreciate you clarifying that. Um, in regards to the book, uh, the multiracial and civil rights book, um, how, how when did you start writing the book, and then how did you come about giving it this title? Well, multiracial. the way the book, yeah, I mean the way the, the way the way the excuse me, the way the book came about. Um, was that, you know, for 20 last some years I've been looking at issues of racial justice and inequality. Um, yeah. And then I started to uh, read various authors talking about uh, discrimination cases where the uh, c- complainant was mixed race, and the descriptions by these authors were that there was a problem, right, that these people were not being treated properly by the courts um, and that their discrimination was a very unique and different form of discrimination and that civil rights laws needed to be reformed to better sort of attend to their differential kind of problems. And I thought that was kind of curious because uh, I myself am mixed race, Latina and uh, African descent, and I found it kind of curious, that position, because my whole life, I have not sort of experienced a unique form of discrimination. You know, people look at the brown face, 
they react to it, you know, positively, uh. negatively, neutrally. But, you know, there's a reaction. Um, and really has it ever been because I was mixed race, right? It's been about being non-white, but not any particular form of non-whiteness. Just non-whiteness itself is, for some people, problematic. And that's what we call discrimination, right, when they act on their bias. And so reading these accounts from these other authors that seem so contrary to my own experience made me want to seek out the stories. And so what I did is I delved into the archives um, to look at these stories of discrimination in court cases. And what I came to see was that there was a vast misinterpretation. You know, I looked at housing, public accommodations, education, the workplace, criminal justice, in all these spaces where mixed-race people file complaints of discrimination, they may identify differently, you know, by saying, I'm mixed-race, um, but they then describe what happens to them, and what they describe happening to them is nothing new, unfortunately, and not unique. What they describe very effectively are the ways in which they were uh ostracized in the workplace, not provided with uh, housing, you know, whatever the case may be, based on their non-white status. You know, they were called the N-word. Um, there were other racial expletives, not rooted on their gender, but on one aspect that was viewed problematic in the mix, uh, typically blackness, but other forms of non-whiteness as well. So th that's the origin, sort of, like, you know, why I got started writing. And then when I saw that it, the, what the evidence showed was so different from what that other story was, I wanted to sort of put out the word and, and get it in writing. Let me ask you, um, Professor Hernandez, most of these cases, were they, did they happen in, in big urban cities? Well, that was the other interesting thing. They happen mm -hmm. across the country. They happen in small towns. They happen in large urban cities. You know, there was uh, no sort of like one place where I could say, oh, this is a problem in X town, and that's where it's located. No, it's sort of a national phenomena and a national pattern, and across all those different contexts as well, which is also very interesting. Interesting, because I remember growing up in, in – and hearing my father say that, I mean, we were not discriminated, but other folks were discriminated, uh, and it happened a lot in, in in New York City. In a lot of these, mm -hmm. I would say, I would say, uh, progressive areas, liberal areas, uh, were basically. Um, they they would see someone who was darker, and uh, and and they would feel, no, we, we can't have those folks here, because he had friends who were professors. You know, my dad was a also a professor, and uh, and they were darker, and then they they were discriminated because they were darker, but it was basically mm -hmm. predominantly predominantly in the Bronx, in Brooklyn, in Queens, in Manhattan, and and and, and that's. That's where I'm, I'm getting at that a lot of this discrimination has, is happening in a lot of the so-called, what we call progressive cities. Unfortunately, you know, being in places that are diverse doesn't mean that we are that much more enlightened. Right? Um, and sometimes being in diverse cities can... Uh, could it create a complacency? You know, the idea of, mm -hmm. oh, I ride the subway with people of all different races, so that right. means that, you know, I'm racially enlightened. You know, but yeah, but they don't come <laughs> up with you, right? You know? <laughs> exactly. Well, we, Riding we, the subway is not enough. <laughs> exactly. 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 I mean, I, I, I definitely, um, I love my, my hometown, but, you know, I know that there's a, a lot of things that have happened in, in, in New York City that, that uh, I would consider to be um, very discriminant to individuals that their complexion were, you know, darker. You know, uh, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's something that has stuck in my, in, my, in my mind for a long time. But getting back to the uh, mixed race, uh, is there, has there been, uh, was there an issue with individuals mixed race during the subprime scandal, fiasco, 
before the crash. Well, when yes, everyone, I mean, the, the, everyone, everyone's getting, everyone was getting uh, loans, houses. They were buying houses left and right, and at that time, I don't think no one was getting discriminated. Oh, were they? Well, I mean that that it's a different form of of discrimination. When we tend to think of discrimination as being about deprivation, right? But okay. discrimination also takes the form of taking advantage of, right? Meaning that you know having people partake in uh, what you would consider um, loans of. Gosh, I'm trying to think of the, sort of the best characterization to put on this. Um, but on its face, lending right. money to people right, who cannot possibly ever really pay that back, right? Um, especially when the you know when the balloon uh, you know bursts and co- collapse in on itself, that kind uh-huh. of predatory lending, right? Right. Is another form of discrimination. Right? How so? Um, How so? In the, in the following sense, it's a, a way of, I don't really care what happens to you. I want to make money off of you, and I'm going to do this in an immoral manner. Because right? that's it, effect, a banker won't call it, right? That's effectively what subprime mortgages are doing. Right? They're immoral lending practices. Because right? they're not based yes. on an appropriate mm-hmm. sort of financial assessment of what is feasible and what is not feasible, um, it, and so that's a way of saying, well, you know, I know this is going to impoverish you, right? <laughs> uh, but I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Zero percent down, you know, these huge interest rates. This is not, you know, an appropriate way to go about doing banking for a community, uh, let alone an, individ- an individual family. Uh, and so that itself is another form of discrimination when you see it happening along race lines. And, you know, where, right. who, where is the predatory particularly happening? Where you, as you said earlier, right, there's poverty all across the nation, right? right? But we don't see the subprime mortgages across the nation in the same way. Well, but not all poverty. Uh, not not everyone was targeted in the same exact ways. See, I have. And we a saw perspective. communities of color in particular targeted. Um, given the sort of the long-standing sort of desire for home ownership as a form of sort of like you know uh, middle-class attainment and respectability, right. there's a lot uh, that goes into it. Right? It's very it's very fraught. See, I, I look at I look at it from a different perspective, and I respect your your point of view. I look at it from from that these were criminals that wanted to make money off anyone and everyone mm. because they targeted also areas in, you know, rural America too. I mean, I, I, I've watched and, and read and researched on, on a lot of these predator lenders that basically did a lot. Maybe it was not reported, you know, which, which is another problem. What we hear is what we're going to take but what we don't hear, we won't know, so we won't have any data on it. But I, well, you know, I'm trying interestingly, to cover. yeah, um, this sociologist out of Princeton University, of Douglas Macy, he did mm-hmm. a pretty um, involved study of the ways in which the subprime mortgaging uh, was very much an issue of race. Um, I mean, that that, that wasn't my own particular study, so I'm just sort of of reporting back on his, um, but it was really quite well documented on his part. Okay. I mean, that's, uh, I would definitely, I'll I'll take a look at that um, study. Um, You said that we're still a skin-based hierarchy uh, in every sense. Is, Is that accurate? Uh, unfortunately, yes, it's still the case because even while you know I can say, oh, people who are non-white um, will encounter issues of discrimination uh, by those who you know harbor those biases. Uh, not all people who are non-white are treated the same way. By that I mean is if you look at uh, the array of skin color, right? Studies have shown uh-huh. that the darker you are, right, the worse it is for you. And so that in uh looking at job applications, 
<laughs> it was uh, discovered that someone who was light skinned but who had less uh, le- fewer years of education was still more often called back for interviews than someone who had more education on their resume but was darker skinned. And so like you can the, have two people who are, at, so let's say, of African ancestry, but if the African ancestry is more apparent, you know, if they're darker skinned, it becomes more problematic for them. Okay. I, I, and so that, I, I, so that I, I, sense is a skin-based hierarchy. Okay. So I, I'm the recruiter. I'm hiring my manager. I get two applications. Both of them are named Chris Brown. What am I going to base it? I haven't seen the individuals. What am I basing if I, if I take one over the other? Ah, see, but this those... is what's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. This is what's so interesting about the way in which the, a lot of this stuff is sort of sussed out is that what the researchers do is unbeknownst to the employers, what they are being given are um, these dummies uh, – Resumes, meaning the resumes have been doctored, right? You know, they're not actual people, uh, but they're paired studies. So, meaning what they have before them are these resumes that look like the same, but then they attach photographs, right? Uh, or they'll do it with online profiles, right? So that you know, there's a way you can see the appearance, even though it's a controlled experiment where the uh, different credentials are very to examine what factors are influencing the decision-making. And with that kind of paired study is where you're able to see whether or not there's some kind of uh, dynamic going on. You know, we've long seen this with uh, housing discrimination, for instance, like, you know, where okay. you send in two sets of people, different races, or in our discussion right now, you know, different skin shades, uh, and you wait to see when you – when they go to apply with the very same financial sort of package, uh, right. what the landlord will say, you know, apartments available, apartments not available. And it, when you send in those uh, uh, pairs, uh, kind of call it an audit study, is where you right. are able to sort of uncover right, uh, the discrimination that people don't necessarily want to own up to. But in today's world, in today's world, when when I get a resume. I would get mm-hmm. a resume or something. It goes to a software tools. So when I get it, I, I, I'm not getting a picture of someone. I'm getting basically the credentials, the history, his job history or her job history. Mm-hmm. So at yeah, that point, yeah. at, that, mm-hmm. at that point, you, you, you're, you're basing the decision not on, on skin color or or the facial profile of the person, they're basing it on, on the scanner is the one who's determining, okay, that person is going to be hired. Uh, I mean, um, call for an interview um, sent to the hiring manager. So I, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about that because I know that I've, I've done that. Uh, and it's not the way these studies are done. I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is that, Time and time again, there are these paired studies where identical uh-huh. resumes are sent out, but and they use a proxy, right? So a proxy for race so, uh, or people's stereotype notions of last names or or even right. first names for that matter, right? So you know, you put Letitia Johnson as one name and you put um, Samantha Smith on another, and sort of a stereotype vision comes up of what those people's faces look like, right? Um, and you have given them both Harvard educations and, you know, uh-huh. however many years of experience. And time and time again, Letitia does not get a phone call for an interview where okay. Samantha does. I mean, that's documented over and over again, um, those paired audit studies. So, you know, you, I think he, what you're sort of uh, gleaning onto is the idea of you would think in a world of, you know, algorithms that are supposed to take out sort of human mm-hmm. bias that these things wouldn't occur. Um, but unfortunately, there's still a moment where human intervention happens. Uh, yeah. And where that human intervention happens, you know, there is the opportunity for 
wonderful things to happen, right, for people to uh, make the right decision, uh, to make decisions based on merit and nothing but merit. But there's also the opportunity for people to exercise their biases, whether they be explicit or implicit. And unfortunately, where people uh, are not being very um, intentional and uh, conscious uh, about the, the why of their decision making, that can lead to the operation of implicit bias. Right? That is unconscious uh, forms right. of reacting on you know based on stereotypes and uh, gut. Uh, gut feelings, right? <laughs> a gut right. is often informed by uh, unintentional and sort of cultural stereotypes. Fantastic. Uh, before we go on, uh, can you give um, your website? Uh, you do have a website. Uh, I did. I did have a website, but it's Fordham University. So if you want to, and also where they can purchase your book. Um, oh yes. Um, if, if people go directly to nyupress.org. Uh, they'll be able to have the book shipped out to them uh, as of tomorrow. And if they put in um, the code PC20, PC20, okay. they'll also get a 20% discount uh, by pre-ordering. Uh, on, uh, so that would be a good thing for them. <laughs> and we'll, um, we'll, put, we'll, we'll put the book on, on, on our website, so this way uh, we'll promote it on, on, on the website. Oh, I'm so wonderful. I'll be so glad for that. And if you also let people know about the discount code, that will be good for them as well. Definitely, definitely. And um, so now that we got that out of the way, um, I wanted to touch on the new, something new that has been happening uh, over the last two years where these college commencement, uh, African, African-Americans and Hispanics, not all of them, but some of them, are basically segregating themselves and having their own commencement because they feel that they're not part of it. Uh, they feel like that they're they're not part of the system. I don't know. I I, I don't think that happened 20 years ago, 25 years ago. <laughs> you know, when when I was going to school and and. Uh, and uh, my other colleagues and buddies, those things were not happening. What has changed over? I thought we were progressing. We were regressing uh, in regards to, uh, you know, the, this whole segregating themselves, because I believe there's individuals that are segregating themselves on their own. Interesting, because you know, a part of my job is to go to commencement every single year. <laughs> well, um, yeah, and uh, however, no, however how many hours it may take, but I'm at them every year. Um, and th- I have to say, I'm, I'm somewhat ignorant. I had not heard of this phenomena uh, at all. Yeah. Harvard University, uh, as a matter of fact, Oberlin College in Ohio, and there's quite a few. I can send you a list of all these universities where groups of African Americans and his not all of them basically had their own commencement. They didn't want to be part of the whole commencement because they felt that they were not, they felt like they were isolated. Uh, and I, I just find that that's part of the problem we have today. Is there's a lot of individuals that have been basically told that they're not, you know, their self-esteem, they're not worth anything. And, and I, I was brought up, my, my dad was basically, would, you know, say great things about and always encourage and, and feel like, you know what, you don't need to, uh, we love you. And whatever anyone says, it's not really that important at all. So that pride of, of, of encouragement and feeling proud of who you are, uh, I think that it's lacking, and I think it's, it's lacking due to parent parenting. Although, I mean, if I could react, even though I I'm ignorant about the actual phenomena, um, but yeah. I'll speak anyway, as a true academic would <laughs> about <laughs> things I know nothing about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just you know there are times when people um, create separate spaces. Um, in order to actually validate 
and um, honor uh, sort of the uh, self-esteem of the individual in the community, right? I mean, I, I can't say that that's specifically what's happening here, but it, I have been um, witness to times in which a group of individuals, like, you know, uh, like one thing I do know about it, more and more uh, corporations are providing what are called affinity groups, Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means that you know uh, people who identify as uh, trans uh, can mm-hmm. have a gathering space uh, in the workplace, or people who identify as Latino, et cetera, right? uh, whatever the affinity may be. Uh, and that's not about rejecting anyone else in that workplace, but it's about sort of coming together to share common concerns, uh, to get insights from one another, how to uh, deal with, you know, issues that are particular to the group. Uh, and it's a way of honoring each other. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's re- uh, disparaging anyone else, if you see what I mean. Um, so, you know, one way to sort of interpret, but without any further knowledge than that, uh, to interpret what is happening with these sort of additional separate commencement ceremonies is that desire to give more honor to one another, you know, along an affinity line. But isn't that taking us back? I mean, it's regressing the, the movement, I mean, of, of integrating and having a colorblind society where basically we, we don't feel that, you know, we can integrate and be part of it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and then there's, uh, I think, the University of California, Berkeley, you know, mm. uh, only pool there was a sign that only no white people here. I mean, this is, growing up, I, I mean, I, 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 not, I never saw that. Or, or no Hispanic in a, in a, or no, those things, you're basically excluding yourself and, and, and isolating yourself. I think that's not, that's not good for, for progressing. It's, it's, it's regressing uh, this whole movement by doing that. Yeah. Well, you know, there are times when the in in response to a consistent uh sort of sense of exclusion or um disparagement that people across the affinity lines come together in order to be able to combat that. Um right. and you know, I could imagine that the, you know, things can be quite tense on college campuses these days, right? You know, um, the consistent um, problems of sort of police profiling and uh, the high level of uh, violence against young people, um, you know, African American, non-white, Latino, et cetera, uh, are dynamics that I think, you know, our young people are trying to sort of come to terms with and figure out sort of, you know, how to navigate. Um, and, you know, perhaps part of that is, you know, having some of these separate spaces, right? But it doesn't mean that they abdicate from the, you know, the rest of society or any other kind of forms of integration. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take that for now. <laughs> Something else that that uh, was brought up um, that I that I wanted to touch is, um, well, we have a let me see, we have here a, a call. Yes. Um, Three one four. Do you have a question for P- Professor Hernandez? Well, I got a question, and I was going to tell her that uh, I've witnessed in my lifetime quite a bit, and these schemes that I see where they try to force people to live amongst people. You know, uh, forced segregation is wrong, but forced integration is just as wrong. And if people prefer to congregate, live with, or around their particular whatever, that's their right to do so, just so long as they don't violate another U.S. citizen's civil rights. And I've seen all these schemes, Shakers, uh, County, Ohio, and St. Louis, and I think it's totally wrong. Uh, When people, you know, blacks flee areas and whites flee areas. And they shouldn't be ridiculed for when they do so. And I've seen uh, Latinos or Hispanics apply for scholarships that was specifically designated 
for Latino. <clears throat> and then they turn around and they apply for scholarships that's particularly designated for African American and black. So they're having it both ways. So uh, I just want to make that point. I, I think it's totally wrong when you try to make people uh, live around and be around or congregate or associate with who they don't want to associate. Uh, the Constitution gives you the right to associate or disassociate. And uh, I think it should be like that. You got those on the far left, those on the right, and those in the middle. Would you agree? <laughs> Professor, <laughs> Professor Hernandez? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I don't think that there's anything, though, about our laws that are forcing people um, to integrate other than, of course, in what are public spaces, right? So meaning, you know, we don't get to designate certain streets just for one group versus another group, uh, nor do we get to do that with our uh, workplaces, uh, our public accommodations, hotels, places to live, et cetera, right? Um, but if you in your private home uh, don't want to invite you know, neighbors of various, uh, you know, affinities, uh, then, you know, that's, that's your choice, right? that's your private sanctuary, uh, you know, about what you do inside your home. Um, but when it affects the public, you know, that's where law gets involved, but only to the extent of n- making sure that no one else's rights are, um, you know, violated. But it's not about forcing any one individual to yeah. uh, engage where, you know, where they don't want to. And I agree with you. Manner. You know, there was a there was a case in Georgia where a high school prom, not on the school property, but they rented out a private location, and they was white, and they wanted to have an all white prom. There's nothing wrong with that, but you had others that ridiculed, called them names, called them Nazis, and all that was wrong. So people need to understand that you can't force people to like you. I do nice things, and all of a sudden, people's knocking at my door. But I didn't go out and tell them that you need to come knock at my door. Anyway, you guys seem like you're having a lot of fun. Continue, please. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. We have another caller. Uh, 608, do you have a question for uh, Professor Hernandez? Hello? Uh, Oh, did did we talk? Yes, uh, you have a question for Professor Hernandez? No, I had a question for Luther. Uh, okay, Luther, you're in the line? Okay, I think Luther just stepped out. Okay, um, so Professor Hernandez, I wanted to touch on the um, this whole situation with uh, racial uh, profiling. You You just brought it up. Do you find that people who are of darker skin get profiled more than individuals that are lighter skin or white? Yes. I mean, the, the, the criminal justice system is sort of rife with skin color bias and not just race bias. And we, we hear a lot about the uh, race bias, but we don't hear about the skin color bias as much. You know, so, for instance, not only does the racial profiling uh, much more intense, the darker skin someone is, it also uh, affects the ways in which people get sentenced. Right? So uh, what um, is found in the criminal justice uh, system time and time again are that people who have committed the same crime, uh, the same severity, et cetera, the darker the skin, the longer the sentence. And that shouldn't be, right? You know, if two people have stolen property of the very same value, you know, they should be sentenced right. in, 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 in similar ways, right, for the crime. Uh, if the crime should be dictating, you know, what the sentence is, not their skin color. Okay. And, and, and those, those laws have been applied. I mean, I'll give you an example. Bill Clinton signed the toughest drug laws and he's supposed to be a progressive where the majority of African Americans and Hispanics have been sent to, to prison because of the laws that he signed so where, where do you stand on that I mean uh, someone who's very progressive who preaches that you know they're colorblind 
but they go ahead and 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 have done more damage to the you know the communities that they're supposed to be protecting and 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 working with by passing those laws. I mean, politics is a dirty business <laughs> in my view, right? Um, and no, the no, ways no, it in is. which. You know, I mean, I think, I think politicians can be very opportunistic, right? If they feel that um, giving the appearance, so to speak, of being tough on crime um, is going to garner them votes, then that's what they will do, right? You know, it's, a, it's sort of a very self-serving move, even if it's counter to what they, you know, profess um, are their political commitments. Uh, and we've seen that, you know, not with just Clinton, but you know, with other presidents as well. Um, right. As far as their sort of way of signaling uh, to a particular constituency um, you know, that they are a viable leader is by you know stepping on the rights uh, and the sort of existences of of non-white people and of poor people of all races. Right, right. No, the only reason I brought that uh, brought up his name because you know. I, I hear a lot of people in, indicating that they're upset with the drug, you know, the drug laws, the, the, the sentencing, but they're, they're forgetting who actually was the one who signed on to, who signed that law. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very easy, very convenient to forget who was the individual and the party that signed that. And it was not the Republicans, and it was not the conservatives, it was Bill Clinton. So I just wanted to to mention that. Last, we have a couple more minutes. I wanted to touch on something that also um, Latin American race, uh, racism in Latin America. Um, I know you touched that. I know you you studied in Brazil, right? In in Bahia. I did, yeah. And the and the book before this one on on multiracials and civil rights, I was about racial subordination in Latin America. Yeah. So, based on your experience in South America, where do you see uh, is racism very, very uh, deep, in, or is it more of a class issue? Or I know I, I've well, been to I Brazil. Mean, I've been to Brazil mm-hmm. twice, so I have a, I know about the situation in Brazil. But overall, what's your take on it? Well. Uh, what is the dynamic in Latin America is a rhetoric, right, of, oh, we don't have discrimination here. Uh, uh, we're so much better than the United States. <laughs> and we don't, uh, we never had white-only fountain, you know, drinking fountains, et cetera, right? So there's a, a, a gesturing to the absence of a Jim Crow past. Uh, but here's what's missing from that particular sort of, Proclamation. Uh, there was no official Jim Crow because there was already Jim Crow de facto. That is to say, sort of looking at the histories of these various Latin American countries, uh, racism has been so firmly entrenched. They didn't need law to, to solidify it any further. Yeah, you know, Brazilians like to say, "Oh, blacks already knew their place, right? They didn't need Jim Crow laws to put them there." Um, yeah. And so, yeah, you know, it's a, it, obviously it's a, a much more complicated, um, you know, package uh, to sort of unpack here in, in our last few yeah. minutes. That's why people should go back and read the first book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the no racial support we'll, nation in Latin America. We'll, also, we'll have you back. We'll, we'll have you back. We'll, we'll have you back. We'll have you back. It was fantastic. Enjoyed it. And as as a matter of fact, we have two more callers, and uh, I just don't have time. We don't have time. But uh, definitely uh, my audience, I'm getting a lot of text messages. They enjoyed it and always welcome to come back. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, fantastic. Have a great one. You too. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. So that was um, Tanya, Professor Tanya Hernandez from Fordham University in New York City. And it was um, enjoyable, very informative. And I'm glad our audience uh, tuned in, and and we have a lot to um, next week. Um, should I have another surprise guest? Probably, probably. I'll give you a hint. She may be running for Congress. 
we're hoping that she, she comes on. But if not, we'll still have another guest. God bless America. And we'll leave you with America the Beautiful. <laughs> 